Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Shanker Chronicles podcast. This six-episode po- six podcast series is an opportunity for me to take a deep dive into the historical, political, scientific, and philosophical background to some of the most important issues of our day. So, thank you for joining me as we all work towards a better regulated society, a self-reg society, and a more just society. Um, I see today's talk as really the conclusion that I've been building up to over the first five podcasts. So this final podcast in the series is about what I see as the real threat to democracy. And I'd like to start by acknowledging something that uh, whatever your political orientation, we all have to agree and accept that the uh, Trump victory in, in 2016 was something quite extraordinary. This, here we're talking about someone who had been hanging around the periphery of presidential politics for three decades. Uh, he had no strong party affiliation. In fact, he had jumped from uh, Republican to Reform Party to Democrat, back to Republican. Um, he had absolutely no military experience. And if anything, he appears to have been a draft dodger. Um, he did not have any of the sort of personality characteristics that we would typically associate with being a president. And of course, he uh, the Trump campaign played on that uh, extensively, that, you know, he was the quintessential outsider, the businessman, etc. But looking back, um, you have to say that uh, his uh, ascent through the polls was really something um, almost astonishing. Uh, of course, he capitalized on the birther strategy. So if we go back to uh, last week, uh, our last podcast, this was absolutely shameless, but it was turning out to be effective. So he stuck with it no matter what. But even so, uh, during the primaries, the chances of him actually becoming president were rated in the low single digits. And even when he won the primaries and he was the party's candidate, uh, he was only given a 12% chance of winning the presidency. So um, here was someone that in the beginning, uh, I don't think many thought he had a, 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 a serious chance at winning the presidency, perhaps himself included. But we all watched um, <laughs> either in amazement or horror as he started to climb uh, through the polls up the polls using the most populist uh, um, uh, tactics imaginable successfully. Um, And um, whatever you may feel about the outcome, the fact is that his winning was truly remarkable. And I think that if we want to understand the real, what I think is the real threat to democracy, we have to understand how this how this was achieved, how they pulled this off. And the answer to that question uh, really goes back to the late 1920s. Edward Bernays, who had been working to sell Woodrow Wilson's League of Nations idea, was hired by the American Tobacco Company um, strictly in order to boost their sales of Lucky Strike cigarettes to women. I believe they had around 12% of the female market at the time. Um, and smoking was really frowned upon. Uh, uh, smoking by women was frowned upon, socially uh, regarded as socially shameful behavior. And uh, in particular, smoking in public. And so Bernays' mandate was to juice sales. Uh, and it, it's important to note that Bernays was Freud's nephew. And this isn't just uh, 
a case of, you know, a distant uncle. They were, in fact, quite close. Um, and there were close familial ties between um, uh, Bernays' family, his parent, his mother, and, and, Freud's, and Freud. And um, they did spend a fair amount of time together. And one of the things that Bernays did was consult Freud about how he might, uh, you know, pull this off, how he might um, sell cigarettes uh, to a population that was very reluctant to smoke in public. And uh, he got from Freud the whole idea of playing on unconscious wishes and desires. So he had to figure what those out, what figure out what those were, and then how to, in a sense, manipulate them. And the first step that he took uh, is regarded as one of the master strokes, uh, the birth, if you like, of the field of public relations, of, um, of applying a new set of techniques to influencing consumer behavior. And what he did was he organized something called the Torches of Freedom March. Uh, the torch, a torch of freedom was a cigarette. And um, he, what he did was he had his secretary send uh, a letter. <laughs> um, it struck me when I was reading this that this was the first example of a letter from a Nigerian prince. Um, so the secretary sent a letter to 30 leading debutantes and a whole bunch of leading feminists. And the letter said, quote, in the interests of equality of the sexes and to fight another sex taboo, I, the secretary, and other young women will light another torch of freedom by smoking cigarettes while strolling on Fifth Avenue in New York City on Easter Sunday. We are doing this to combat the silly prejudice that the cigarette is suitable for the home, the restaurant, the taxi cab, the theater lobby, but never, no, never for the sidewalk. Women smokers and their escorts will stroll from 48th Street to 54th um, between 11.30 and 1 o'clock. And um, the letter was successful. He got a bunch of women to sign on, or the letter did, uh, and there's a sort of cruel irony here. So, you know, they're playing on this idea of emancipation, um, but really what they were doing, what Bernays was doing, was switching uh, women from one type of enslavement to another. But the key in all this is that Bernays kept his own involvement deeply secret. Uh, word never leaked out that this was all being uh, arranged by the American Tobacco Company. Now, um, would these women, would these same women, would they still have marched had they known that it was uh, the tobacco, American Tobacco Company that was behind all this? Um, maybe some would, maybe they all would, but they were never given that choice. And, um, and that's what's disturbing about all this. And it was really only the first, uh, you know, sort of assault um, on, on freedom, uh, the assault on, on the freedom to choose, all done under the auspices of defending freedom. Um, he had other uh, equally, I don't know how to put this, um, unpleasant uh, strategies. So it, it was a multi-pronged attack. One of the things that they found through their marketing research was that only a very tiny percentage of American women, probably less than 2%, felt that they were attractive. Uh, the rest were very anxious about their looks, anxious about their weights, about their weight. So he started a campaign that said, uh, instead of reaching for that dessert, reach for a cigarette. And so here, um, you know, he's playing on the unconscious anxieties that the con these consumers had. Um, and, you know, with some um, uh, 
neurobiology to back it up because what, one of the things that we now know is that smoking, nicotine, uh, activates the same receptors in the hypothalamus that, um, that are activated in fight or flight. And that's why uh, smoking suppresses appetite. Uh, it's because we are so designed that we do not, uh, we are not hungry when in fight or flight. Um, hunger would get in the way of, of attacking or fleeing. Um, so, uh, the, so it was a reinforcing behavior. Um, you know, you play on the anxiety while manipulating, in this case, a neurobiological system um, that reinforced the message. So that's sort of like, if you like, strike two, and then strike three. Um, and this one was really quite extraordinary. Um, it was what's now known in you know, advertising history as the Green Campaign. Um, in his marketing research, uh, Bernays discovered that a significant number of those women who resisted buying Lucky Strikes did so because they felt the color of the packaging clashed with their outfit. Um, so Bernays went to the president of uh, ACT, uh, ATC and said, look, we've got to change the color of the packaging. And the problem was um, the uh, president had just spent millions on the new green Lucky Strikes package. And uh, they had done it because they their, their research told them that green is the color of health. And in fact, they had uh, mounted a campaign um, uh, dwelling on the health benefits of smoking. Uh, one of them being that smoking will soothe your, uh, soothe your throat. Uh, this because of uh, well-known concerns that smoking actually irritated the throat. But Lucky Strikes would be different. It's the healthy. It's the healthy cigarette. Anyways, he wasn't prepared to. Um, he wasn't prepared to change the packaging. So Bernays thought, well, I need a better. I need another strategy, and that was to to convince American women to buy green clothes, and that was the green campaign. And he did it in all sorts of ways. Um, he hired actresses and well-known well-known figures to wear green. He got newspapers to comment on green as the new color um, uh, uh, and on and on. And the end result was that green became the it color. And guess what? Sales skyrocketed. So we can see the pattern here, um, this pattern of, you know, um, keeping your own involvement. No one ever knew that he was behind the green color campaign uh, or let alone the, the tobacco company. So you keep your own, um, you keep your own involvement secret. And this really was, uh, even to describe it as shameless behavior is an understatement. It was worse than that because Bernays already knew about the health risks of smoking. Um, there was information coming out from, from doctors already in the 30s expressing concern. And Bernays kept all this secret, uh, but he himself would never smoke. Uh, his wife was a smoker, and he went to all sorts of effort to get her to quit. So he himself um, would never have uh, uh, started to smoke knowing what he knew. Uh, yet he kept that knowledge secret uh, because all that mattered here were sales. All that mattered here was juicing the product. And that's the pattern that we, that we saw um, and still to some extent see, um, but especially in the 60s. And I talked about this uh, two podcasts ago, um, how when the Surgeon General, U.S. Surgeon General's report on the danger of smoking came out in 1966, uh, the tobacco companies responded, hiring doctors or uh, actors to look like doctors, saying that this was just a, a statistical correlation, that there was no causal uh, relationship, and so on. And it wasn't just, it's important to note that this isn't just a case of the tobacco companies. Everybody was doing this. Uh, there's a very famous case where the, uh, what's, what was known as the 
Sugar Research Foundation uh, responded to some uh, very worrying medical research in the 1960s showing a strong link between um, sugar and cardiovascular, sugar consumption and cardiovascular disease. So they mounted a vigorous campaign, the same as the tobacco companies, you get actors, you get doctors, um, you, you get your own research, you sponsor your own research. And what they set out to do, quite successfully as it happens, was to shift um, the whole issue so that it wasn't sugar that was the cause of cardiovascular disease, it was fat, fats, fats in the diet. Um, and you know, even um, just a few years ago, back in 2015, it was found, reported extensively in the New York Times, that Coca-Cola had been paying for research to show that there was no link between sugary drinks and obesity, um, that uh, obesity was the result of lack of exercise and fats in the diet. Um, so, uh, you know, this is the pattern. The pattern is that we conceal the truth uh, and play on whatever the anxieties are that our research identifies. Now, this basic uh, strategy of advertising receives the most incredible boost from the psychology of reasoning. Now, I've talked about uh, the psychology of reasoning, um, you know, throughout this series, and I talk about it extensively in the last book in Reframed. Um, uh, and basically, this is the field that has uh, discovered the various, what are called reasoning biases or heuristics that we use unconsciously uh, to make decisions. And these heuristics can be manipulated. They can, once you know what they are, you can use them to sell your product. Uh, I won't go into any detail here, but in Reframed, I talk about uh, Chris Nodder's book, Evil by Design. Um, and I was really excited when I ordered that book because I thought, you know, here would be someone who would, you know, expose uh, the shameless use of heuristics to sell product. But in fact, um, Nodder's book is about, uh, it, you know, it's a manual for businesses to learn how to use um, uh, uh, reasoning biases to overcome their greatest obstacle. And for Nodder, that big obstacle is the seven deadly sins. And the reason why the seven deadly sins are such a big deal is because maybe you can get uh, a consumer, um, you know, you can manipulate them to buy something like a, a luxury item, but then they feel guilty afterwards. And they feel guilty because of the um, you know, the, the, the continuing, continuing influence of the seven deadly sins, greed, lust. Uh, and so um, this is a real obstacle for businesses because um, the last thing you want is make the sale, but then have the consumer unhappy, feeling guilty about what they've just done. And so you have to quell those feelings of guilt. You have to, uh, you have to undo the influence of the seven deadly sins, which Nodder sees as simply, um, they're just uh, cultural norms. Uh, and so we have to introduce new cultural norms. Um, so for example, the new norm will be that it is actually praiseworthy to flaunt your wealth, um, you know, to wear outrageous bling, uh, you know, and and let everyone know that you're, you've got a hundred thousand dollar watch on your wrist and so on and so on, or um, that you can afford, you know, a, a $500,000 car. Um, and so the point is that um, not only uh, is it necessary to create this new uh, attitude towards, say, luxury items, um, but that's how you get good reviews. That's how you influence others to imitate, to emulate. Um, and we can see that, uh, we can see that this is pretty damn effective. 
But where it really jumped off was with the explosion of what we now know as data science. So data science is, um, you know, using sophisticated tools of, say, statistics and experimental design um, to test whether your, uh, the, the heuristic you're trying to use is actually working um, or whether it's not having any effect at all. I give you just one example. Suppose your, uh, your psychology of reasoning bias is something called social proof, the social proof bias. And it basi basically, um, all that means is that when we make a decision, we are strongly influenced by what we see the majority or others doing. And knowing that that, that, that is a strong bias in how we make our decisions, um, what the psychologist of reasoning then, what the business practice then does using this heuristic is you will hire uh, confederates that look like the consumer or actors or um, even just people that look like me in some relevant way and they're happily uh, buying this so that that sways us uh, really without thinking. And the whole point here that has to be emphasized is that all of this is operating on the limbic system beneath the threshold of conscious awareness. We are not aware of these reasoning biases. So if you'd like to learn more about this, you can read a book like Dan Ariely's uh, uh, Predictably Irrational, uh, which is a very good book. Um, and you can begin to get a fix on the kinds of reasoning, the various kinds of heuristics that are used to sway consumer behavior. For me, one of the biggest surprises, um, uh, and very interesting one, is that Netflix has um, launched a, a blog site called the Netflix Technology, uh, Netflix, it's called the Netflix Tech Blog, and it's all about, it's, it, it's a, incredibly uh, illuminating blogs written by the data scientists themselves that are developing Netflix um, consumer strategies. If you're interested in this, you could start by reading, they wrote a five blog series, a five part series called um, Building Confidence in a Decision. And I was fascinated to read this uh, because uh, these scientists were using exactly the same methodology that we used at Mary in our own studies on the benefits of merit, our, uh, our, our uh, therapy model. Uh, and so uh, what they're trying to do is we describe these in psych as type 1 and type 2 errors. And basically what it means is that you're trying to come up with a statistically significant range of possible mistakes, possible false, uh, false positives or false negatives. Um, so you're trying to rule out what all the confounds are for your research, rule out the mis and then keep the possibility that you haven't been totally successful um, to a statistically uh, acceptable level, um, which for them and for us is about five percent, five percent of possible errors, and that's considered to be reasonable. Um, and the whole point of this series is to be transparent, uh, because that's another reasoning bias. Try transparency builds trust, and so the feeling that uh, the feeling that um, Netflix is being very open about their research um, really makes us. Uh, feel that, you know, it sort of quells those feelings that maybe I'm being manipulated. Maybe, maybe there's some, something hidden behind all this. But what's interesting about this series is the use of what are called primes. Uh, and primes, this is another basic principle of psychology of reasoning. So a prime could be something as simple as an image um, a smell, a sound, or a word. And it really influences, without our realizing it, how we read something, how we interpret something, how we feel about it afterwards. 
And the primes they use, if you, if you go to the first and second uh, blocks, uh, the word joy and choice keep on getting repeated. And so uh, the implication here is that, um, you know, the more choice we have, the happier we are. Um, so this is all designed, um, you know, we're using all these reasoning biases to ensure that you have a lot of choice and that you're happy with these choices. Um, but that's a real problem for them because the psychology of reasoning tells us something different. And that is, uh, as I'll explain in two seconds, uh, choice actually makes us unhappy. Too much choice makes us very unhappy, makes us very anxious. And that's a problem for them because um, uh, uh, they have so much choice. Their catalog is so. Uh, their catalog of films is so big, and so the question is, how do you? There's two branches of research here called UI and UX. So that's the user interface and then the user experience uh, research. Um, how do we design the UI uh, in such a way that we don't overload the consumer with too much choice? And so they use various strategies um, and quote, uh, the, I'm quoting now from the blog series, showing members the top 10 experience will help them find something to watch, increasing member joy and satisfaction. And again, those are the, the key primes here, joy and satisfaction. So right away then we're starting to think, well, this is a good thing. The, the you know, this the top 10 is, is, being, is being done to make me to make me really benefit from this experience. Um, but of course, if you think about what I said a second ago, what they're really uh, relying on here is social proof bias. Um, you know, that, that uh, we, are, we will follow what we see as the crowd uh, to simplify decision, to reduce the amount of choice. And so, quote, we can help members choose some great content to watch by fulfilling the intrinsic human desire to be part of a shared conversation. Translated, we're gonna use social proof bias. If the top 10 experience really is good for our members in accord with the hypothesis, we would expect the treatment group to show an increase in viewing of titles that appear in the top 10 list and for generally strong engagement from that row. Okay, so now what we're gonna do is we're going to use um, you know, statistical methods to see does the top 10 uh, actually uh, reflect an increase of, um, of watching uh, movies from the top 10 or is there no effect at all? But now we get to what you might call the real motive behind all this, what's driving this research. Quote, are the ideas we are testing helping our members to choose Netflix as their entertainment destination on any given night? Our research shows that this metric, and the details are omitted, is correlated in the long term with the probab probability that members will retain their subscription. Broadly, we know that if you don't capture a member's attention within 90 seconds, that member will likely lose interest and move on to another activity. Okay, so essentially what that's saying is this is all about the hook model. And uh, we talk about the, I talk about the hook model at length and reframed. Um, so how do we hook the viewer's attention there, um, you know, that they'll watch something. But more importantly, um, you know, you can cancel a Netflix uh, membership um, at any time, um, you know, if that month. So how do we get members to roll over, keep them, uh, keep their subscription? Um, so what this is really all about is using um, well-known heuristics um, to drive uh, consumer engagement and to keep those consumers uh, you know, uh, uh, committed to the service. Uh, don't cancel your subscription. Um, 
And they study this pretty carefully, and here's where they do their research. So every aspect of what you're seeing has been studied. The artwork, the images, the thumbnail images, the look that the actors, the emotions captured in the images, sounds. Um, another big uh, bias that they rely on heavily is personalization. Um, you've got the, uh, uh, the familiar uh, Netflix logo with the familiar sound associated with it. Uh, and of course, the rollover mechanism to keep you watching to drive binge wa watching, although they won't use that term anymore. Um, so, but all of these are subjected, all these techniques are subjected to close data science analysis to find out, you know, are they working? Can they be tweaked? What else can we do? Can we make it better? Uh, and one of the, in one of the blogs, um, uh, this one's called Artwork Personalization at Netflix. The idea that, that uh, you want to feel, you know, like when you log on, so it will greet you, you know, hello, Stuart, or whatever the salutation is, that there, there is this feeling that the service has been crafted to me to, to meet my, uh, um, the things I enjoy doing, the patterns that they see in my viewing behavior. Quote, if we present that perfect image on your homepage, and as they say, an image is worth a thousand words, then maybe, just maybe, you'll give it a try. This is yet another way Netflix differs from traditional media offerings. We don't have one product, but over a hundred million different products, with one for each of our members, with personalized recommendations and personalized visuals. And it's no coincidence that they are uh, repeating the word personalized. This is another prime, um, and it's a strong, it's a strong bias. Now you may read all this. Uh, and, and I'm not, by no means am I suggesting that this is not good business practice. In fact, you may read all this and you and think, well, good for them. You know, they're trying to uh, create something that, um, that for me does leave me feeling satisfied. Um, and, uh, you know, the point here isn't to um, express the same sorts of concerns that many of us now feel about Facebook, but rather just to say that this is a case where, you know, maybe it's been primed, but the transparency is enough that we're conscious of, you know, who was organizing the parade. Uh, why were they organizing the parade? They are, in fact, fairly transparent. And that speaks uh, to good company practice. But there may be some that worry about this, um, especially in other hands. And the most famous example of someone who's very worried about this is Dan Kahneman. And so you're all familiar with Dan Kahneman. He wrote Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, with the Nobel Laureate. Uh, and Kahneman himself is, with Adam Tversky, really the, one of the most important of the pioneers in the psychology of reasoning. Uh, Kahneman and Tversky discovered many of the biases that we now uh, regard as standard. And I think that the reason that Kahneman wrote Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, um, the sort of underlying reason, was he was getting worried. And he says, quote, Many people find priming unbelievable because they don't correspond to their subjective experience. Many find the results upsetting because they threaten the sense of agency and autonomy, our freedom to choose. If the content of a screensaver on an irrelevant computer can affect your willingness to help strangers without your being aware of it, i.e. priming, how free are you? That's why he wrote the book. This is a book that is, you know, from someone who is really deeply involved in the research, worrying about the impact it can have on true freedom. Now, what Kahneman is 
talking about here. What many of the, um, uh, there are many, many psychologists who now say the rationalist dream is over, um, that uh, we are not the rational creatures that Descartes assumed. Uh, the, uh, and that's the whole point of Ariely's book, um, uh, Predictably Irrational. We are irrational. We make, uh, meaning that we make our decisions, our choices, quote, um, without being aware why we're doing it, uh, because these are these are subconscious processes. These are things that our our limbic system is doing without our even knowing it, guiding our behavior. Um, so the core idea here, which does goes back to Descartes, which goes back really to the Old Testament, is that freedom is the ability to choose. Now, I have a long discussion in Reframed. I think that this is a misreading of Descartes, actually. Um, I think Descartes' argument is much more nuanced. Uh, and so I won't go over it here. If you're interested in the deep philosophy here, you can, uh, I think it's chapter two or four, I can't remember now. And um, what Descartes was really saying is that um, Descartes had this view called privilege access view, which means I know what I think, I know what I believe. I have privilege access inside my own mind. Um, but in fact, um, he really only uses that at the end of a long epistemological argument um, to defend um, our ability to see, uh, to see clearly what we do think or want, whatever. But in fact, in most of the cases, we're unaware. Um, and it takes, uh, for Descartes, extensive philosophical, uh, in modern terms, extensive uh, 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 therapeutic or self-analysis to get to what we really feel, what we really want. So for Descartes, what is rationality? Uh, and the answer is, it's asking why? Um, not being sure. Why do I think this? Why do I say this? Why do I do this? And so rationality is self-questioning. That's his method of doubt. Uh, trying to, through this deep analysis, get to the bottom level of, of knowing, of really being acquainted with yourself. And this is a, a long, hard process. But the key here is uh, that from Descartes' position, the psychology of reasoning is in fact a great step forward in rationalism because it provides us with an understanding uh, that leads to self-awareness once we begin to see what are our hidden biases um, that, that operate below our level of, of a direct awareness, that operate below the level of consciousness. So, if you are aware that you're being primed or you're aware that you are being subjected to dopamine hijacking, um, you may still, uh, you may still uh, want to do whatever it is the behavior uh, uh, that you know, whoever's doing the priming wants, but at least you're aware now and you're conscious and you're making a decision based on your awareness of the various factors operating here or the dopamine hijacking. So uh, maybe you'll still go on a Torches of Freedom um, uh, march, um, but it will be with a full awareness of, of what's behind it all. Um, and you maybe you think, well, you know, knowing, you know, I know full well what Bernays is up to, but nevertheless, this is an important moment uh, in our drive for emancipation. Uh, so what we're looking at here is the idea isn't uh, that you can somehow learn how to um, prevent these hidden biases. It's to become aware of them. And what Kahneman is worried about is when someone is using these techniques, not just to sell cigarettes, which is bad enough, but for hidden, uh, dangerous political reasons. When, for example, you have a political campaign that exemplifies 
how data science can be used. And the truth is that the Trump campaign was a masterpiece of data science and psychology of reasoning. It really doesn't take very much. You know, you hire a handful of, of, uh, of actors um, and, you know, you have them situated behind the speaker when he's speaking or scattered uh, throughout the crowd. It doesn't take very much to get that whole crowd uh, chanting, uh, build the wall or um, whatever. Uh, and so now what we're going to do is uh, what they did was they used a whole range of techniques from the psychology of reasoning. I won't go through them all. I'll just give you a couple. Um, so uh, there's something called the exposure effect. Uh, and the best example I've ever seen of the exposure effect was the red mega ball cap, which Trump himself was wearing. Um, uh, that has an immediate instant, the color, the hat, the slogan, all of these are, are incredibly effective priming techniques. And the priming itself. Um, so uh, what we didn't see on the rallies were the warm-up acts. Uh, the person that was getting the crowd all juiced up, the use of sound, the use of the use of lighting. All of this um, is priming the attendees to go into red brain. Um, and then we have the conf a confirmation bias, and Trump was a master of using confirmation bias. Um, and so what we're looking for with confirmation bias is reassuring the consumer that you made the right choice. Uh, and um, uh, this is one of the reasons why, um, you know, Trump is constantly um, uh, telling um, his base what a terrific job their presidency did. Um, it's really a way of reassuring the base what a wonderful decision you made in making this purchase and putting me into the White House. Uh, and was it, are all the tactics uh, successful? Well, a Pew report just came out with astonishing approval rate um, after everything that's happened for the Trump presidency. I believe it was, um, he came in third of what the public reported were most effective presidents. Uh, so all of this, you know, bearing in mind uh, the history that we lived through from 2016-2020, this is um, a remarkable testament to the power of psychology reasoning. And then, of course, we have Cambridge Analytica. Now, um, if you're not familiar with this, you can look up Cambridge Analytica on the web, on the internet, there's a good um, history of what was involved. Uh, but basically, what this was, was a method to bring personalization, that personalization bias, um, into the political process. So what they did was they illegally acquired uh, the Facebook profiles that had been gathered of 87 million uh, Facebook users without these users knowing it. And they use that data to build psychological profiles. And then they, and then the Trump campaign used this psychographic information to deliver what were customized messages to different voting groups. Um, and basically the messages, you know, using all kinds of digital platforms, and basically the messages were either to vote for Trump or not to vote for Clinton. And then for swing voters, uh, they develop a range of social proof tactics to, to, uh, that targeted social uh, swing voters. Now, there is a basic principle that we know from uh, the research over the last 10 years in psychology of reasoning. And that is that Priming really only works, or it works best, when the subject is already receptive to the prime. So there's this deep sort of uh, uh, subconscious or pre-conscious uh, feeling that the prime taps into. I forget where she is now, uh, one of the U.S. Uh, universities, but Dolores Al um, Alborasen, uh, 
found showed that um, uh, I can prime uh, something like eating behavior. I can prime. I can prime people to make healthy food choices if they are already uh, uh, if they already want to become thin. So. Um, if they couldn't care less about their weight, then the primes have absolutely no effect. And uh, this whole field is called subliminal motivation. It goes back to a psychologist called science. And uh, one of the most astonishing uh, studies uh, was done, I believe, in 2016 by Cooper and Cooper. And what they showed, they flashed a subliminal message on the screen of a movie, just for a couple seconds, a very, very brief, um, uh, promoting... Uh, a sugary soft drink. And what they found was that uh, they could, in that sales in, uh, after the movie did, went skyrocketed uh, for the sugary soft drink, but only in those individuals who were already thirsty. The subliminal message had no impact on those who weren't thirsty. So if my Cambridge Analytica psychographic research tells me that this group is deeply worried that America is in decline. That tells me that a message like MAGA, make America great again, is going to be highly effective at influencing that group's behavior. So here you get data science combined with psychology of reasoning to craft an incredible political campaign. Now, uh, I'm sure uh, most of you are familiar with the name Christopher Wiley. He was the whistleblower who, who worked for Cambridge Analytica and then blew the, blew the news. And there was uh, a very famous interview that he gave in The Guardian, uh, the English Guardian, um, um, that I wanted to quote. He said, rules don't matter for them. And by them, he means the wealthy conservative investors who were backing Trump, uh, someone like uh, uh, Robert Mercer. Uh, for them, this is a war and it's all fair. They want to fight a culture war in America. Cambridge Analytica was supposed to be the arsenal of weapons to fight that culture war. Now, when I read that, uh, I immediately thought of that line that I uh, read to you last podcast um, where uh, Nixon said to Haldeman, this is war. Anything goes because this is war. But I think there's one thing that Wiley got wrong um, because what we learned on January 6th and what we've learned over the past year is that this was not simply a cultural war. This was not a war of conservatism versus liberalism. This was, this is an ideological war. And it's fought, being fought between authoritarians and those who believe in democracy. And the big casualty in this war has been truth. And it always is when, you know, you conceal the truth of who is behind the torches of freedom. Now, there's absolutely nothing new about political lying. Um, I have a quotation here um, from an essay that uh, uh, Jonathan Swift, the Jonathan Swift who wrote Gulliver's Travels, uh, he wrote an essay in 1710 in response to uh, an essay that had just come out by Ashburton called The Art of Political Lying. Uh, and it's really worth, you can get this, I'll give, uh, I'll give Adam the, the web link for this. It's, it's, it's a really interesting article, essay. It was written in 1710. Um, and uh, Swift starts off by quoting some lines from Ovid's Metamorphosis. So this goes back to the year 6 AD. Uh, I won't read the whole passage here. You can get this from the notes too. Um, but uh, Ovid warns about the dubious whispers, tumults, fresh designed and chilling fears that astound the anxious mind. Uh, so lies are playing on our deep anxieties. Uh, so this is a, a, an idea that's been a long, around a long time, but I wanted to read you something that Swift said. A political lie is sometimes born out of a discarded statesman's head 
and thence delivered to be nursed and dandled by the rabble. His interest, the statesman's interest, is to corrupt our manners, blind our understanding, drain our wealth, and in time destroy our constitution. And we at last are brought to the very brink of ruin. Okay, so that's 1710. Okay, so we've got this thing then, we've got political lying, um, nothing new about that. But I want to go back to Canada again, because the psychology of reasoning discovered something very important. A, this is Kahneman. A reliable way to make people believe in falsehoods is frequent repetition, because film, familiarity will then not be easily distinguished from truth. Authoritarian institution and marketers have always known this fact. But it was psychologists who discovered that you do not have to repeat the entire statement of a fact or idea to make it appear true. And then he goes on and on. Um, uh, uh, and you'll, I'll give you the full quotation um, uh, with the notes uh, to show you how little it takes to prime us um, without our knowing that we've been primed uh, to prime us to be receptive to the populist uh, uh, rage. Okay, now what we're seeing here from a self-reg perspective is that familiarity is a red brain. This distinction between familiarity and truth. Familiarity is a red brain and truth is a blue brain process. What the red brain does is it true it tunes out our awareness that the lie is a lie and it does this as a way of reducing stress it is what i call a maladaptive mode of self-regulation so we block out our blue brain awareness that the lie is a lie or that the liar is a liar we block out the stress of self-awareness, the stress of novelty. And the last one's very interesting. This is the reason why, quote, customers prefer something the more they see it. And the more they prefer something, the more likely they are to buy it. And that's a quotation that comes from a new book called Choice Hacking, and I'll give you the reference for that as well. Um, and that's the ultimate uh, reasoning bias that the Trump campaign exploited, familiarity, the constant tweets. And it really didn't matter um, uh, what they discovered was it didn't matter if the if the exposure that Trump was getting was negative or positive. You know, uh, look how shameless this is. You know, the access Hollywood tape um, exposure builds familiarity. Familiarity is a red brain phenomenon that Trump's that Trump's forget the pun, truth. But I wanted to, to end on what I think is an even more worrying aspect of everything I've done today, because I think that these would-be authoritarians have figured out something that the rest of us haven't. Uh, I think they stumbled onto an important psychological insight. Um, We've got this classic definition, biblical, that freedom is the ability to choose. But then what psychologists of reasoning found is that choice makes us, choosing makes us anxious. We may think that the more choice, the better. But in fact, what the psychology research tells us is the more choice there is, the more anxious we become and the less satisfied we are afterwards with our choice. In fact, if there's too much choice, we become paralyzed and, in fact, depressed. So we have to limit choice. We have to structure choice. We have to give the illusion of choice when, in fact, um, there's very little of it. But the insight I think they've stumbled on is that we say, we all say, and I think this is a deep aspect of our enlightenment conditioning, we all say that we crave 
personal freedom. We crave the ability to choose. But here's the last big insight, and it's an early one, first discovered by uh, Nisbet and Wilson in a famous paper called Telling More Than We Can Know back in 1977. What we say may have little bearing on what we do. What we profess may have little bearing on why we act the way we do. We may say that we crave freedom when in fact freedom makes us anxious. The blue brain wants freedom. The blue brain wants choice. The blue brain wants to think through options, wants to know why. The red brain wants security. The red brain wants to reduce stress. So what the authoritarian does, using all the techniques I've talked about today, is talk directly to the red brain. Get the red brain in control. Suppress voters' blue brain. And that's why we do self-reg. Self-reg is all about self-awareness. Self-reg is all about asking why. Why do I feel this way? Why am I shouting? Why am I chanting? Why am I threatening those individuals who are dedicated to protecting my health and well-being? Why in a certain state am I attacking the guardians of the Congress with fire extinguishers and, and poles and worse? What about my strongly held beliefs? I'm not talking about values here. I'm not talking about principles. I'm talking about, about these strongly held convictions. Were they planted in me? Were they manipulated in me? Were they strengthened in me? All I'm talking about is doing with ourselves what we do with a child. What we do with a kid or a teen is we reframe. The whole point of reframing their behavior, is it misbehavior or stress behavior, is we need to pause. We need to be reflective about this behavior. What is it really about? Now we need to do this with ourselves. That's what Kahneman was warning. That's why he wrote the book. That's why Ariely wrote Predictably Irrational. They are warning us. And so what I've come to feel as the real threat is that if we want to if we want to preserve democracy then it's our blue brains that we have to liberate that means learning all about biases and reasoning and primes what we're seeking here is to have our blue brains unfettered unleashed aware of what's happening, aware of what's happening around me and inside me. That was the goal of this six-part series leading up to this final statement. But after I, after I wrote that, um, I was a bit tired. And so I listened uh, to Vivaldi's um, Gloria in D major. And I realized that I didn't want to end this podcast series on such a you know, uh, an ominous note. Because listening to this glorious piece of music really reminded me of the incredible beauty that humans are capable, capable of creating. And that's the real point. That's the real goal of self-reg. The real goal a self-reg in our, in our fifth step of restoration is to restore our sense of joy. Not as a prime, but that sense of awe, that sense of the sublime that we are all capable of. So that's why I did this six-part series. And if nothing else, uh, maybe you'll go and listen to the, the Gloria in D major. Um, this series was brought to you by Self-Reg Global as part of its mission to bring Self-Reg knowledge to audiences around the world.
If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, follow us on social media, and if you missed anything, you can check out the show notes at Self-Rate Global's website, selfrayglobal.com. Thank you for joining me in this series. This has been uh, a true pleasure for me. Thank you, Adam, for putting all this together. Thanks, everyone.